As a disclaimer, views expressed in interviews are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of My Ag Life, JCS Marketing, and its employees. This is Kristen. And this is Anna. And this is Farm Bureau Friday. Hello, and welcome to Farm Bureau Friday. Anna and I are here with Brian Little. He's the Chief Operating Officer for Farm Employers Labor Service and the Director for Employment Policy for California Farm Bureau. Take it away, Anna. Brian, I know we just got off of a webinar uh, just a couple of weeks ago where we talked about kind of five things coming our way in terms of compliance in the ag industry. And so what I was hoping is we could just have a little conversation about what those pieces look like and um, kind of what Fells and Farm Bureau are doing to help navigate that and then what employers should be prepared for. So maybe we could kick it off with uh, paid sick leave. Now, I know that that's something that we have already been accustomed to, but there are some changes. There are, uh, there are, uh, before you, uh, ag employers, employers of all kinds were expected to offer employees at least three, the, the greater of three days or 24 hours of paid sick leave. The legislature saw fit in the last session to change that to uh, five, at least five days, the greater of five days or 40 hours of paid sick leave. Uh, that's something that's tripped up a lot of people. A lot of people are trying to gauge, okay, well, my people work, you know, nine and a half hour days. Uh, how many days is that of paid sick leave before they use up their 40 hours? And that's not the way it works. Uh, the guidance from the labor commissioner indicates pretty clearly that their expectation is that you are to offer employees uh, the greater of five days or 40 hours of paid sick leave. And if they only work four hours a day, you're going to wind up giving them 10 days of paid sick leave in order to exhaust that 40-hour minimum. So just to clear up that confusion right off the top, uh, the other thing we tried um, wearing my Farm Bureau hat, not my Fells hat, uh, when we were working on this bill at, up at the Capitol last year, um, we tried to get the legislature to allow employers to request some sort of written documentation that paid sick leave is being used for the purpose for which it's intended. Uh, and we sort of um, got to talk to the hand on that one. They they were not interested in that, even though uh, the city of LA's uh, paid sick leave ordinance left over from COVID actually a lot of employers to ask for that. So it's a bit of a disappointment, um, but the legislature looks like for now, at least they stopped short of going to two weeks of paid sick leave, which the proponents of that bill uh, were talking about in the context of it moving through the legislative process. So we only have only, I mean, only, holy, holy cow, only one. We only have one week of paid sick leave over 40 hours, but stay tuned because that could wind up changing. So what, what were some of the things, you know, wearing your Farm Bureau hat that you saw going on in these early discussions that that led to this increase? Because it wasn't that long ago that we just adopted the three days, right? Yeah, I think I think that COVID paid sick leave sort of cleared out the whatever political obstacles there might have been to going to that. But with all the COVID paid sick leave uh, that the legislature mandated throughout the pandemic, it just became impossible to argue uh, that we couldn't manage to do uh, five days and 40 hours of paid sick leave when we've been doing it for a couple of years already with COVID. So uh, that, I think, is how that all came to be. 
uh, you know, and, and COVID, the, the funny thing about it is that COVID has normalized some things that would have been considered unusual or extraordinary. Uh, and sort of like, well, if you can do that, you know, not not all of life is a crisis. COVID was a genuine crisis and we had to do unusual things to be able to cope with that crisis. But our legislature seems to think two things about employers. One is that employers are a bottomless pit of money. Uh, no matter what it is that they impose upon employers, employers can just write another check to pay for it and everything will be A-OK. And um, that comes from dealing with a legislature where there's almost nobody who's ever had to um, make a payroll or show a profit to investors or to themselves. Most of these people just don't never done that, don't have that experience, don't know what it's like. So I guess it's really no surprise that they expect things of employers that are not realistic a lot of the time. This one had a lot of chatter in the uh, the chat during the webinar. What were some of the, the most confusing things that you saw from people, some of the questions that you saw from people? I think a lot of people have a hard time um, wrapping their minds around the idea that they can't ask for some sort of written documentation that paid sick leave is actually being used for the purpose for which it's intended. And I wish I could explain why that is, um, because we never, I was never able to extract a coherent explanation from anyone at the Capitol about why they thought that was a bad idea. And in fact, the city of LA did it with their COVID paid sick leave. So how it is that's not acceptable, I don't, I don't really know. I think what's confusing a lot of people though, is the distinction between uh, 40 hours, five days, and that the labor commissioner's expectation, the guys, now, by the way, the, 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 the law is not explicit on this point but the labor commissioner's guidance is that they expect you to do the the greater of 40 hours or five days and they base that on uh, a long-standing idea that laws are to be laws and regulations are to be interpreted in the way that is most protective and beneficial to employees at least when we're dealing with labor code and things of that nature so um the tie, the tie is always going to go to the runner, regardless of whether the ball got to the bag before the runner did or not. So, so Brian, um, one of the questions that I noticed in the chat when we did that webinar a couple of weeks back was somebody saying, you know, during regular season, say your folks are working eight hours a day, um, but during harvest, a regular day becomes 10 hours. Right. So what what does an employer do then? With this new policy, well, that in that case, uh, you're going to be uh, making sure that you give them at least the greater of the five days of paid sick leave, even if that's ten hour days, or the greater of forty hours, even if they're working, for example, you know, four hour days during the off season. So, uh, the, the the just to keep in mind is that the, the minimum there is going to be the greater of five days or forty hours. And the and the, the those days or and hours are going to expand depending on seasonal changes and how people are actually working. And then I'm I'm guessing, you know, your HR manual, all of that needs an update to reflect language that speaks to this. Yeah, we we've Fells of course offers um, employee employee handbooks. We have a standard form handbook for smaller employers, a custom handbook for. Larger employers, and the reason why they're different, uh, just as a uh, quick, by the way, is frankly, the bigger you are, the more exposure you probably have, the more likely you're going to get a letter from one of those law firms down on Century Boulevard in LA, uh, trying to shake you down for $15,000 to make a $25,000 claim that you didn't pay overtime or meal meal and rest period penalties or whatever, uh, that 
you know, it'll, it, we're, we're going to ask for $30,000, but you know, we can make this go away for 15. How generous of them. Uh, and so we do get a lot of that California employers get a lot of that in California. So, um, People, people don't really necessarily appreciate that that's going to be a problem and they need to be, that's why they need to be on top of these things. But that's why having a good, solid employee handbook is pretty important uh, because it gives you something to go into court with. If you have to get in front of a neutral fact finder, a judge, an administrative law judge, somebody like that, an arbitrator, uh, having a handbook with written policy in it about what your policy is going to be. And to the extent your policies are not discriminatory, that's important too. Uh, that uh, that you have at least a starting point to be able to defend yourself, or if you need to justify a termination of an employee for cause, uh, you know, for cause is not required in California. You can terminate anyone at any time for any reason, as long as it's not one of the listed. Is as long as your arm of discriminatory reasons that you cannot terminate someone. But if you have rules in your handbook uh, that say that we have a rule against showing up, <laughs> got a call from a grower the other day who had an employee show up for work so stoned that they passed out in the truck and they couldn't, they could not um, revive them in the truck. They were breathing. Fortunately, they called the rescue squad. The rescue squad came and, and, and managed to revive them, but there was nothing they could do. To get... So, you know, when you show up for work that stoned, right? I mean, you, you, you need to be aware of the fact, and you, it's good to have employment policy that you will not tolerate people being intoxicated at the work site. Right. And most handbooks have that, but it's a good thing to have so that you can rely on that if you decide you terminate that person. And to be honest, if someone's going to show up that stone for work, I think I might terminate them on the spot. Yeah. Sounds like you need to cover your bases with, with those handbooks. Yeah. And so and a, handbook can go, a handbook can go a long way. It's not expensive to do. Uh, and it's not expensive to hand out to your employees. Get someone who's bilingual, a consultant or somebody who's bilingual to explain to them what the handbook is uh, and what's in it. And that can go a long way because what you want, what you don't want is you don't want them to get up in front of a, in front of an ALJ or somebody like that and say, handbook, what handbook, right? Yeah. That's not that's not a good outcome. That's almost a segue into one of the things we were going to talk about, the cannabis use. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think it's a good time. We to, can just go right about that it. Yeah. Jump right to that one. Yeah, yeah. You know, let's do that since you, you just gave us a, a story about uh, an right. incident. Well, one of, one of the challenges that farmers face in California is that it's always 420 in California. So it's kind of funny when they're doing the hearings on these two marijuana bills, uh, they were joking amongst themselves about happy 420. They were doing the hearings on April 20th, happy 420 time, right? It's time for us all to just go and relax, man, because that's just your opinion, man, that I'm stoned. We get a lot of that in California. And the one thing you really don't want, it's, you know, we, we've always, people had drinking problems forever and ever. People sometimes drank at times when it's not appropriate for them to do that, like when they're trying to work or operate a tractor or an automobile, heaven forbid, right? Um, but we also know that in California, if you've ever driven, there's a surface street pretty close to where I live in the east suburb of Sacramento, where you have to drive down this kind of long surface street to get to Interstate 80 so I can get to work. On a nice summer day in the morning, I could be driving to work and almost catch a contact high from all the people that are smoking pot in their cars. As you're just driving, commuting to go to work in the yeah. morning. It's like, wow, you really can't deal with life without being high, huh? At eight o'clock in the morning. Good for you. I think it would slow them down. <laughs> you might think, right? Except uh, nobody in California seems to know what a speed limit is and nobody seems to know how to merge or have know what a turn signal is for. But that's a whole nother story. Yeah. But I anyway. just have my healthy addiction to coffee instead. <laughs> you would be both, man. You know, I mean, a lot of times, the worst thing is give you the jitters, right? Um, so if you overdo that, anyway, 
because it's always 420 in California, uh, employers are going to have to figure out a way to deal with that social reality that we're drawing our workforce out of and understand that we need to have policy and we need to have uh, we need to be prepared for that likelihood. So for years, we've dealt with alcohol and alcohol abuse issues that can creep into the workplace uh, with AB 2188 that the legislature passed a couple of years ago. Uh, they don't, there's two things, and then SB 788, there are two things that the legislature doesn't want you to do. Number one, they don't want you to be doing the classic urine testing where you're detecting uh, metabolites in someone's urine uh, that were an indication of past use of cannabis, but aren't necessarily a reliable indicator that the person is under the, is intoxicated at the moment that the test occurs. And to be blunt, that's a fair point. I mean, you know, and, and for employers, you know, thinking about how an employer might deal with us. If you won't hire anybody or fire anybody who can't pee clean, you're going to really constrict your available workforce in California, you know, and to the extent that, you know, the guy gets a little bit high watching the 49ers game with his buddies this past weekend. Uh, you think that didn't happen? I'm pretty sure it did. But uh, testing him on Monday when he comes to work and he's still got, you know, cannabis metabolites in his blood. How does that, what good does that do you? It doesn't tell you that he's incapacitated, right? Uh, the other thing that uh, the legislature also does not want you to do is to discriminate against someone on the basis of their past marijuana use. Whether that's a conviction and it's getting harder and harder all the time to get information about convictions without violating the law. Uh, but, uh, but the ultimate thing to keep in mind is that if you do learn of someone's past marijuana use in the course of a hiring decision, uh, you can't make an adverse personnel decision against them on the basis of that information. That now is considered to be discrimination in California civil rights laws. So uh, the use of marijuana has become prevalent enough now in California that uh, employers have to work around that. You can still do safety testing. So if you are, uh, are, are using DOT, uh, federal DOT licensed employees or registered employees, and you need to do a drug test to demonstrate that they're, uh, they're safe to drive, you can still do that uh, if you have safety sensitive positions or because you're under a federal contract, you have to maintain a drug free workplace. You can still do that testing. But the key thing that I think for most employers who probably uh, some might be some of that, but a lot of people will be neither one is to analyze performance and look at how people are performing, uh, have a solid handbook policy uh, that allows you to terminate someone for unsafe behavior, uh, particularly for being intoxicated in the workplace, whether they had a had a fifth of Jack Daniels rolling around in the floorboard of their truck or whether they smoked, fired up a fatty before they came in for the day. You know, you just get you got you got to be dealing with the performance and the safety issues related to that. So if someone is obviously intoxicated, regardless of what the intoxicant is, you need to have policy that will allow you to deal with those safety issues as that raises and be able to provide a safe workplace for all the rest of your employees, regardless of what their intoxicant of choice might be. So so what does an employer do if they suspect someone is high on the job? I don't are there on the spot testing kits for cannabis now? Um saliva so kits, like saliva test saliva test kits are becoming more and more available or saliva testing is becoming more and more available. Uh, and that's one thing you can turn to to try to determine whether someone is intoxicated in at the time. On the other hand though, I think in most cases if someone is so intoxicated that they can't work safely, you, you don't need a test for that. Uh, you can you can discern if they're slurring, if they're not able to walk, <laughs> if they if they show up for a safety meeting in the truck and they passed out in the truck and you can't wake them up. That, there's your sign. You know, yeah. uh, you don't want that guy operating a forklift. 
Yeah. So one of the things that we always try to put people in a position to be able to do with our handbooks and with our other, the way that we suggest people, how they deal with these problems is put them in a position that if someone is doing something that's obviously unsafe, operating a forklift in an unsafe manner, that you don't have to do three strikes and you're out, right? You don't have to warn them and then give them another warning and then fire them. If they're operating a machine like a forklift or a truck or a tractor in a manner that's unsafe, it doesn't really matter why, although it's doubly important if they are intoxicated at the time, but it doesn't matter why. You need to have the flexibility to be able to terminate that person or appropriately discipline that person on the spot uh, and have policy that's strong enough that you'll have the flexibility to do that. Sounds like a, a good call to action for supervisors to have reasonable suspicion training. Good point. Yeah, I think reasonable suspicion training is probably not a bad idea just so you can recognize the signs. But I think relying on reasonable suspicion training, uh, a better course of action will be to be observing behavior and the degree to which their apparent intoxication is causing safety problems uh, with other with, with the employees that are around them and the activities that they're doing. Because again, it doesn't matter whether they're stoned, it doesn't matter whether they're drunk. It, what matters is whether or not they can work safely and whether or not they're so intoxicated they can't work safely. So the next thing, Brian, on my, my list is about reproductive loss right. leave. Right. And this, um, as I understand it, is an extension of bereavement leave. Um, but I think the the big take home for uh, employers is that this, correct me if I'm wrong, does not have to be paid. That is correct. In the same way that uh, you can you can give people paid leave to serve jury duty, but you're not required to, although that is job protected. So that if someone goes on a leave to serve on a jury, uh, you know, so we all get to do from time to time in California, apparently, uh, you, you can't fire someone for answering a jury summons. If someone has a death in their family, they have a right to five days of bereavement leave. It need not be paid, but you can have policy that allows it to be paid. If you have paid time off or vacation, uh, they have a right under the law to use that paid time off or vacation in, for that bereavement leave. Uh, you can request uh, some written proof that an event occurred that triggers bereavement leave, and that became the law in 2021. Last year, uh, they expanded that to reproductive loss leave. So it's all the things of failed surrogacy, um, a failed uh, implantation, um, a failed adoption, uh, whatever the case, there's a list of about five of them that I don't know uh, from memory, but it's all the things you might expect in a situation like that. And it's structured in a very similar way uh, to bereavement leave. Uh, you have um, a certain number of days. Uh, you now you cannot, for in the case of reproductive loss leave, you cannot request written documentation of the event that has triggered the request for the leave. And they have a legally protected right. It's a job protected leave in the first place. So it, whether it's paid or unpaid, uh, you can't fire them for taking it or you shouldn't fire them for taking it anyway. And uh, and it can be paid, need not be paid. Uh, and it's a minimum of five days, whether paid or unpaid. So, and in any combination, you can pay, you know, have first two days unpaid and the last three days paid or the other way around, whatever you want to do. Uh, but again, to the degree they might have PTO or vacation, uh, they have a legally protected right to be able to use that PTO or vacation for that purpose, as well as for bereavement. And does that apply to all employees or is it just full-time employees? That's all your employees. All employees. All employees, yeah. yeah. And then, Brian, would you say, is that something that should be then updated in a handbook? 
It should be, and it's been updated in all of our handbooks. So uh, to the, but there's there's also bereavement leave policy floating around on the internet that will be California compliant. So uh, to the extent that you don't need to buy a whole new handbook, you can't update gotcha. these things. But we update them in our handbooks also when we're doing handbooks for clients. So I feel like we saved the two biggies for last. Um, let's let's dive into the new coming indoor heat standard. Right. Right. Well. You know, we've been dealing with the outdoor heat standards since 2006, uh, and I, I kind of felt like we'd gotten to where we had a pretty good handle on that. And the, all the indications we'd gotten from Cal OSHA was that we were seeing pretty good compliance on farms with provision of shade and water and things like that. We still have problems from time to time trying to understand what as close as practicable means, and it seems to shift depending on who the ALJ is and how they're writing their decision. But still... You know, closest practical is a bit like the definition of truth and beauty. You know, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. But now we have this new indoor workplace heat standard coming online uh, that is a lot more complicated, requires a lot more record keeping, and doesn't really have very clear uh, ways of delineating uh, when which standard applies to a given employee who might be doing some work indoors or a given group of employees who might be giving, doing some work indoors and some work outdoors. And the degree to which they're doing something like operating a motor vehicle. Is that an indoor place of work or is that an outdoor place of work? Well, for the purposes of this, this new standard, it's an indoor place of work. Mm. And because it triggers on, because you can have um, de minimis exposure of 15 minutes uh, per hour in a vehicle and a storage container being used as a storage shed, something of that nature, as long as the temperature never exceeds 95 degrees. Well, duh, you know, I mean, that's going to happen all the time in the Central Valley in the summertime. So that's an exception that is useless for any practical purpose. There's this ideological, kind of ideological commitment on the part of the current staff of OSHA that temperatures in excess of 95 degrees are just going to kill you instantaneously. So, <laughs> um, so they, don't, they don't want you to ever be exposed to that. So that's why the standard looks a lot like, it looks like it does. And they want extensive record keeping on indoor temperatures and workspaces where people are working. Uh, additional measurements when it, you have reason to believe the temperature may have increased uh, beyond the trigger that would require you to do certain things like providing shade and water and so on and so forth. So it's going to be pretty, it's going to be an interesting challenge to figure out how, I mean, I wish I could tell you that I know exactly how the agency is going to enforce this, but I don't. Uh, they haven't come, come across with any of their guidance or FAQs or anything like that yet. So we'll know more once they do that. Um, but for the time being, employers that have people who are working indoors and outdoors are going to have some interesting problems in figuring out how the agency, what the agency expects them to do to be in compliance with the indoor heat standard. And that vehicle tractor outdoor storage unit thing is just one example of some of the complications. So to the extent you have an employee getting into a vehicle, a, a truck that's been sitting outdoors all day, and it's 110 degrees in the truck. Right, which not really that unusual. You go, you get in the truck, you turn the air conditioner, turn the motor on, turn the air conditioner on, and in a few minutes, you're you know down to about 80 degrees, right? And 82 is the minimum threshold for compliance with the new indoor standard. Wow. Now, are you required to keep records on what the temperature is when you got into the truck? Uh, is the employer required to monitor that, keep records of that? Uh, that that's one of the reasons why we tried so hard to get some meaningful exemptions for vehicles, and we were just not successful in doing that. So. It's going to be an interesting challenge. Just understand that that if you have indoor outdoor employees, um, you're going to have something new you're going to have to deal with this summer coming up. And I wish I had more information than I do at this point. 
but just be aware that that's something that's going to be coming. And the degree to which Cal OSHA is going to be doing enforcement in ag in the Valley, I don't really know. This is a real huge political hot button uh, for the logistics industry in Southern California, moving stuff, T-shirts and televisions and sneakers yeah. out of the port at Long Beach in the transshipment, the big transshipment warehouses in Riverside County and places like that, mm-hmm. where they actually were having problems with people on 110 degree days in Riverside County, with people getting sick, moving stuff in and out of cargo trailers, you know, transshipping them through where making sure that, you know, the Best Buy in Plano, Texas got the right number of 85 inch flat screen TVs, uh, as opposed to somebody else getting the right number of cases of sneakers. And that's what they do in these places. They move stuff in and out. But to the extent they were having people getting sick, it's unfortunate that that had that that happened that way. But like a lot of other things um, in, in California, we do regulatory things that and then try to do one size fits all mm-hmm. which doesn't right i mean you know what it just it just and and then these things they just try to apply things that don't necessarily make sense in the context in which they're trying to apply them and the agency and the standards boards um unwillingness to listen to some of the concerns that we raised is a bit disturbing um but we'll be work continuing to work with them uh, because there are going to be issues we're going to need to sort out as to how they're going to apply what might make sense at a big transshipment warehouse in Riverside County in July, as opposed to what we might be doing at a packing shed in mm-hmm. late August in the Central Valley. So, Well, I can't help, Brian, but think about packing sheds, uh, greenhouses, wineries. Um, wineries. What about like... Um, you know, I, my first job out of college was with foster farms and those chicks have to be kept at a certain temperature to -hmm. keep them alive. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's, I, that's over 82 degrees or whatever that arbitrary threshold you just threw out. Um, my, my guess is this will also trigger record keeping training. Well, yep. Record keeping training provision, provision of cool down areas and water. Uh, uh, administrative controls for exposure to that heat. Uh, so to the degree you have to keep the chicks at, let's call it 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they're, and you're wearing Tyvek clothing, for example, or something like that to protect you from zoonotic diseases and to protect the chicks from you, right? Um, that's going to be something else you're going to have to take account of because if you're using clothing that restricts uh, your body from shedding heat, then that uh, triggers a higher level of monitoring by your employer of you while you're working to make sure. And that's particularly true in the first 10 days that you're working in that environment, that you're going to have to do more monitoring of employees when that situation occurs. And that's part of the problem is we're trying to do this kind of one size fits all that doesn't really fit anybody, um, which we'll talk. Well, I think the next one we're going to talk about, it's got a similar problem with that too about some of the costs that that are going to come along with this rule because it did sound like besides heavy on the record keeping that it was definitely going to um, come with some costs for employers yeah well it's going to it's going to oblige employers obviously to make ho- hopefully we're making provision for water already for people who are working in hot indoor environments and a place for them to cool off but to the extent that you don't have an air-conditioned space available uh, a lot of employers aren't necessarily going to have a place where they can create an air-conditioned space for people to be able to cool down after they've been in temperatures that are that exceed the thresholds in the regulation. And this is really problematic for people who are operating businesses in smaller or older structures uh, that you're just not necessarily going to have a place that you can air condition. 
There might not be a break room that you can put an air conditioner in. There might not be existing walls. There are not. You're going to need to make provision for that. But anything that has a roof or walls along the perimeter, even if it's something like a packing shed, for example, that might have high bay doors on two or three of the exterior walls of the building uh, that can be retracted and usually are retracted when the packing shed is being operated, uh, that's still an indoor workspace for the purposes of the new indoor standard, as opposed to an outdoor workspace, which might make more sense in the real world for that to be an outdoor workspace rather than an indoor workspace. But that's what OSHA has decreed, and that's what we're going to have to try to figure out how to deal with. It feels like this standard is even more cumbersome than the outdoor standard. Oh, it is. There's no question. With all the record keeping and all the monitoring of employees and everything else that the standard is going to require, it is going to be considerably more cumbersome, which is why our suggestion to the agency was to the extent you have someone who works indoors and outdoors, let the employer select compliance with the outdoor standard as opposed to the indoor standard. And that was a suggestion that both the agency and the standards board rejected. You know, Brian, I, I recall that the driving force for the outdoor standard was, uh, you know, an incident in the field that resulted in an employee's death because of she had been exposed to to high heats outdoors. What is, are things happening like that currently within the ag industry to trigger this uh, new requirement or what, what was the driving force here? Well, agriculture is not the trigger for this. Now, this is a general industry standard. General industry standards apply to all employers. And then the agency, they, they look at a series of incidents that they think they need to try to get on top of. And then they try to shoehorn a regulation that suits that particular incident down onto all employers in all industries. And it's not a good way to make regulations, I think. Uh, but they, <laughs> and then they write an incredibly complicated 15 page regulations yeah. with 35 pages of FAQs to try to answer what the stuff <laughs> in 15 pages of regulation means. Uh, and then uh, when you complain that it's complicated and that we really need to go through this line by line and analyze what it actually means and how it fits together with other things like that, like it, they then say, well, it's too complicated. We can't do that. Like, really? It's what you get paid for. So, I, that, yeah, that, but that's what we typically get from them. And so we're obligated to go back again and again and again and say, hey, you need to adjust this. And then they don't. And I, I wish I knew what the answer to it is. Um, but again, it's a little bit like some of the problems we have with the legislature where we have people who never had to make a profit or make a payroll and don't mm -hmm. really know what it takes. Well, and it's such an interesting place for, for Farm Bureau, right? I, I feel like we as a membership advocacy organization, our initial hat that we wear is to uh, fight these regulatory changes or at least help guide them in a direction that makes sense for our industry. But then once they come into play, I feel like we switch hats and we put on our education hats where we do things like this, where we're helping folks understand how to implement these programs. You know, they can obviously reach out to Fells to get handbooks, you know, as a county Farm Bureau staff, um, we're holding informational webinars and writing articles in the paper. Um, so it just, you know, I know keeping up with this compliance stuff is, is a job in itself, hence <laughs> your position. Um, but I, I would, I would hope listeners are, are understanding like the, the benefit of being a Farm Bureau member to help kind of, we have the job of keeping a pulse on this and, and they can benefit from, you know, just the resources that we provide. Yeah. I think we're going to know a lot more 
in the next couple of months about exactly what the agency's expectations are going to be for employers in very specific situations. And so right now, it's a little difficult to tell you to rebuild your packing house to be in mm-hmm. compliance with. The, but it's not a bad time to be thinking about how you might be able to provide an air-conditioned cool-down space in a building like that and start looking at how you might be able to do that. And I, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I'm thinking that a lot of these structures probably are, there are going to be ways that you can do that, ways that you can make water readily available to employees in a way that's going to be satisfactory to OSHA. Uh, you don't necessarily want people having to take, you know, 10, you don't, you don't want people walking 15 minutes to get water, right? I mean, that yeah. wouldn't be acceptable under the requirements of the outdoor standard. And hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, and you don't want to have that happening with the indoor standard either. Uh, so readily available of water and cool down rest areas and things of that nature. An understanding of the fact that if you have people working in Tyvek suits in spaces that are, whatever reason, are, you know, temperatures 90 or 95 degrees to understand that there is some hazard to that, just like you would with a tractor driver on a really hot summer day uh, working in on, on an unair-conditioned orchard tractor with just a ROPS on it. Uh, dragging an air blast sprayer through the orchard or the vineyard or whatever the case might be, right? You're going to be mindful of the fact that that Tyvek suit, that all the PPE that he's wearing is in and of itself is a heat illness hazard for an outdoor employee who's driving a tractor doing that work. So just start to be a little bit more aware of what the hazards are in indoor workspaces uh, and be a little bit more aware of what you can do to try to start to address those things. Yeah, especially going into summer, I mean, almost February and we've had a very sunny weekend already. So. Yes. And yeah, we sure did. So, although sounds like um, we're going to, that's going to go away for a little while. Yeah, it's supposed to. Yeah. I hope we just don't confuse the, the almond blossoms in the next yeah. couple of days. <laughs> I know it. I mean, if it rain, if it rains on partly, partly way, part way up blossoms, what happens to the, I don't know. Um, There can be some like fungus, fungal issues. Okay. Yeah. And, and then the we also don't, the don't fly in the rain anyway, well, right? I was, I was gonna say so. Last year we we did have some issues because it was kind of cold and foggy and damp during bloom. Those bee flight hours were were reduced, and then of course pollination doesn't happen as as we would hope. So right. yeah, well, okay. challenge, right? That's I know, something. right? Yeah. Well, it's I feel like you know farmers are the biggest gamblers, right? They're and and in this state, it's even harder when we have these, you know regulatory requirements that that don't allow folks to do what they need to do in order to farm um which kind of brings us to our last topic for the for the day is workplace violence can you i mean this is this is not a active shooter training this is this is way more in depth can you can you kind of talk us through that and then um, give a couple of examples of what employers should be prepared to be prepared for? The workplace violence standard was the result of a bill passed by the legislature. Uh, the sponsor of the bill was a state senator who represents Half Moon Bay. So I'm sure everybody remembers the shooting at the mushroom farm in Half Moon Bay last year. And that was a terrible thing. Um, unfortunately, we live in a society where in and out has decided to shut down their last restaurant in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, Kaiser Permanente and other big companies in Oakland are telling their employees not to go out at lunchtime because of the crime. And that's going to spill over into workplaces. It has to, it can't not. Right. So if we're not going to keep dangerous people incarcerated because we want to decarcerate everybody, I suppose these sorts of things are going to spill over into the workplace. And 
the state of Cal the government of the state of California expects um, employers to be cognizant of that and expects employers to do what sheriffs and prosecutors apparently can't do and try to provide a safe workplace for their employees. And that's what the workplace violence standard gets to is uh, looking very much like an illness and injury prevention program where you are required as an employer to go looking for hazards in your workplace. And the um, typical example that I used over the years is go look at your tractors and make sure they have PTO guards on them. Mm -hmm. Make sure that the seatbelts work, make sure that the ROPS, if it's a folding ROPS, make sure it's, it folds up. Those kind of things, kind of basic safety things. It, the thing, the good thing about an injury and illness prevention program is that, it, is that because it's written and because it requires you to do things, it requires you to put some thought into paying attention to these kinds of safety issues. The workplace violence standard is an expansion of that kind of a model into the kind of things that most people really don't think too much about. And like you said before, it's more than just active shooter training. It's understanding to the degree you have uh, public facing areas in your business, the degree to which you might be inviting the public into that area, does that pose a hazard to any of the employees that are working in that space? To the extent that you have people working in that space and those people are having domestic issues that you might not even be aware of. Mm -hmm. But if uh, someone wants to hurt their domestic partner, uh, where are they going to find them? They're probably going to find them at work, right? And so these are issues that the workplace violence standard expects you to try to anticipate and deal with. And part of that's going to be control. maybe is controlling access. Uh, we may already be controlling access for uh, hygiene purposes and food safety purposes and things of that nature. So you might be able to dual purpose that kind of uh, access restrictions on access to the workplace to be able to deal with those issues. Um, yeah, you know, it, it is, it is, you're going to need to be probably be aware of social media traffic that's happening, even if it's on devices that you did not provide to your employees. Uh, the hard nut to crack has been things, I mean, to give you an example of something that I know a colleague of mine with the California Restaurant Association talked about all the time is what happens when you get a bar full of people and some half of them are Giants fans and half of them are Dodger fans. Mm -hmm. And then the, and the trash talking starts, right? And so does that is that a workplace violence hazard for your employees who are working in that space if you're the operator of the bar? Well, maybe. Um, and I think we can imagine similar scenarios that are happening that could happen in a large agricultural workplace, in a packing shed, or in a large field, a group of people working in a field, or something like that. So those kind of things are things you're going to have to be looking out for. But the standard has very complicated requirements for evaluation and record keeping of these kinds of workplace violence issues. And it, it's a, a record, a, an incident of workplace violence is a recordable incident, even if no act of violence occurs, just a threat of an act of violence that you're required to record that, keep records of it, keep those records for three years and provide those records upon request to an employee or an agent of the government or a um, labor union that's asking for it. Uh, something I think we might be seeing more and more of in the next couple of years. So uh, it's, it, it, is, it is like it has many of the same elements as the existing injury and illness prevention program regulation that we already have to do, but it has very detailed requirements for analysis and recording of potential workplace violence 
issues that are not in the IPP already. And that's something that we're going to need to be mindful of. And this is another one of those things that because we're trying to take something, a model that was originally imposed by regulation on hospitals and healthcare companies and large, sophisticated, uh, well-provisioned for employers who have sophisticated sites that are very much controlled access sites. You, you can't always just walk, except for the public facing areas of a hospital. There are lots of places in hospital where you can't go, where mm -hmm. access is restricted. So those that kind of, you're trying to take, that's another example of trying to take, you know, a size, a, me, a size medium glove and fit it on a large hand. It just doesn't work. Uh, but trying to figure out how to adopt that, adapt that to our specific situations is going to be our challenge. Um, because this regulation has been imposed on all of us by legislation rather than by Cal OSHA regulation, uh, one of the things that I and a great many other people have been doing are trying to make it clear to the agency that we expect them to come forward with template plans, frequently asked questions, guidance documents as to what their expectations are going to be in a workplace that isn't a large hospital, right? Uh, because that's really the only example we have to go on at this point. So I, I think you made a really good point there, Brian. So this wasn't a Cal OSHA analyzing employer incidents and saying a workplace violence program needs to be in place based on an increased incidence. This was a legislative driven standard. Yes. And the legislature's capacity to do that kind of in-depth analysis and proposals is significantly limited. Yeah. Uh, as you know, if you've ever seen, watched the legislative process work, you know how how little of that they actually do. And they didn't do much in this case. Uh, so, you know, we we didn't get, we, we got, what we got was something, the agency had already been working on a general industry workplace violence standard that we had a lot of concerns about. Mm -hmm. And we'd worked through that process one, one of the reasons why this bill happened the way that it did is that this, along with the indoor heat standard and a few other things, got caught in the queue behind all the emergency COVID-19 regulations. And the pent-up demand associated with those things, I think, caused the agency and the legislature to do things kind of haphazardly and to not really discharge their responsibility to carefully analyze what they were doing. And they didn't. And so this workplace violence standard that's going to be imposed on us by an enactment of the legislature is is going to be problematic and we're going to need to figure out how to work through it and figure out how to make the agency happy uh showing that we actually are making the extra effort to try to deal with the issues that the problems in the society that surround our workplace leak into our workplaces and create safety hazards for our employees uh since it appears that no one else is going to deal with them uh, employers are going to be required to deal with them in some way, shape, or form. I'm wondering how much they're going to expect employers to be like monitoring things like you mentioned social media. I mean, yeah. do, are there privacy concerns that are going to come into play that an employer could be in trouble for if they overstep that boundary with their employee? Well, you know, you 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 can discipline employees for saying things in their social media, their personal social media uh, that are uh, that are problematic for your business goals. And you can have an, an employee handbook policy that indicates that your ex expectations that your employees will support the business goals of your business. So I think that um, ha having now, you know, 
how it, it's not yet known the degree to which uh, this new workplace violence standard is going to impose an affirmative duty on an employer to monitor uh, social media among their employees. I mean, are you going to have to go out and get a, a TikTok account and right. uh, yeah. and some all these other an X account and monitor everyone's because because nobody does Facebook anymore but old people like me. Everybody, <laughs> the whole world's gone on. The whole world's gone on right from that. Now they're all on something else. I don't even know what all those social media platforms are, but. You know, do you have a, does it impose an affirmative duty to monitor all that social media? I don't, nobody really knows yet uh, about that. And like everything, like a lot of things in California, uh, litigation will occur because it always does. And litigation will tell the tale about a lot of these things. We'll know better when that happens. It almost seems like, I mean, all five of these things we've been discussing, we could revisit in six months or eight months from now or 12 months from now and you know, what have we learned from these? Um, they seem to all be ever-changing, I guess. I think the last two particularly are going to be yeah. like that. We're going to be building these airplanes as we fly them. Uh, and, that, yeah, I know. <laughs> I use that metaphor so much now, I, I'm starting to hate it, but I'm afraid it's apt in this case. Yeah. And so it's kind of hard to know exactly what these things are going to require employers to do, except to understand that these are new problems that employers are going to be expected to deal with one way or another at least initially, just the exercise of common sense, you know, and understand that sometimes people's bad behavior toward one another is something as an employer, you might be able to do something to try to create a safer space for your employees to work in and understand that society as a whole seems to be expecting employers to do that Uh, to the extent that you can, for example, control access to a workspace where people are working so that not anybody can just, not any Yahoo can just walk in, um, hopefully not with a gun, uh, but again, you know, this is more than active shooter training. It is that that's what happens when deterrence that hopefully you can conceive of knowing that you need to be doing this. It, when that deterrence fails, then you, you know, are dealing with an active shooter. I'm not saying you shouldn't do active shooter training. You should. Um, but that's a very specialized thing that we don't do at Fells, but a lot of people out there do. If you have a lot of people coming and going out of your workplace, uh, particularly if it's semi-public facing, like you're operating a fruit stand or something like that, a large one, uh, might not be a bad idea uh, to think about doing that, especially depending on where you are and what the community propensity seems to be for those kinds of problems. And Brian, before we wrap up, I just want to like reiterate in case um, people are just listening right now, the increased paid sick leave in play. Right. Okay. We need to we need to start making those yeah. adjustments right now. The reproductive loss in yeah. play. Yes, they're now. Right. OK. The cannabis non-discriminatory in right. play. You cannot discriminate against someone because of their cannabis use off the job. That's the key takeaway with that. And then for indoor heat and workplace violence, when do we need to have our ducks in a row? Uh, the indoor heat illness probably will be voted on. Uh, in the place by the College of Standards Board at their March meeting. Uh, they're trying to aim at having it in place for the upcoming heat season. Workplace violence, you're supposed to have an operational plan in place by July 1st, wow. which is why we're really, really badgering the agency to develop these documents and plans and give us guidance as to what it is they expect employers to do. Because at this point, I, I could try to put together a plan, a template plan, but I'd only be guessing as to what mm-hmm. the agency wants. And so we're going to, and they're the ones who are going to be responsible for enforcing it. And 
anything they do probably will not make the unions that were the primary uh, proponents of the the bill. It won't make them happy. Won't make us happy. Won't make anybody happy. Um, but at least we need some. When, when you're the when you're the party that has to actually do this stuff, you know, you need some certainty as to what it is you're required to do. Mm-hmm. Now, are you just crossing your fingers that they are going to come up with a protocol for us, or no? They're saying that they, that they will. They're saying that they will. And the senior levels of the agency are saying that they're going to do this, that they recognize the need to do this, and they recognize uh, that it's going to be very difficult for them to do any kind of meaningful enforcement in the absence of it. So I think that's a positive sign uh, that they recognize that they need to be on top of this, even though it isn't it's not it's not a regulation that they did. It's here because of a enactment of the legislature. But what the legislature came up with tracks pretty closely with where the agency left off in the process of developing the workplace violence reg. I, I would have hoped that if it had gone on for another year, we could have gotten some meaningful adjustments to it through the Calusia Standards Board, but that's not going to happen now. So we have to deal with what we had as of, you know, last summer with yeah. the Calosha standard. So I would say one of the biggest takeaways from this entire conversation is that employers need to cover their bases with solid handbooks. Am I yes. right? Yes, absolutely. Solid handbooks. uh, That helps put you in a position that you can explain to your employees what the rules of the road are for their employment with you. Right. And that's really important, I think, for don't don't surprise, don't discipline someone for someone that they didn't understand that they weren't supposed to do. Now, yes, it may seem like common sense to you. Right. You know, but common sense is not a common commodity. So (laughs) that's why it's important to put it in your handbook and make sure that that's clearly understood. Doing things like just, you know, I realize that we still have people, and I'm kind of one of those people that think that maybe we shouldn't be smoking as much pot as we all do all the time, but that train has left the station. And so we got to figure out how, when we're talking about safety in the workplace and things like that, how we're going to deal with that and not borrow trouble by engaging in discriminatory conduct with people who get high on the weekend, but have at least have the capacity to be able to work safely, or maybe you're not doing anything unsafe on the job when they were high on Saturday. So, you know, don't, don't just assume that because they, you knew that they got high with some of their friends on Saturday, they can't work safely on Monday. Right. I think we showed again and again, that's not necessarily the case, but also to the extent that you think that they are not safe on Monday, uh, you also, now we can use saliva testing to try to do point in time evaluation of whether someone is intoxicated or not, and continuing to rely on their performance. You know, are they doing things that are unsafe in the workplace? Those are things that you can see. It doesn't matter what the intoxicant is. If they're working unsafely, you can act on that. So the other two things, the heat illness and the workplace violence, are, again, uh, they're going to be works in progress as we figure out what we need to be doing going forward. And we'll continue engaging the regulatory agencies on this stuff and passing along what we learn to employers as we learn more about what the agency's expectations are. It's just right now, all we know is that the airplane is going to have a fuselage and wings and engines. Beyond that, it's just too early to tell. So Brian, as we as we kind of wrap up today, if, if folks are wanting to stay engaged on these topics or reach out to Fells for some compliance help, how can they get a hold of you? It's really easy. Our website is www.fells.net. You can call us at 800-753-9073 or email us at info at fells.net. And we'll be happy to reach back to you uh, first chance we get. 
And also would like to add that uh, parenthetically on February 23rd, we're having another webinar uh, that I think will be of interest to people. I spent the week last week in Southern California uh, helping to get trainings up and running for card check. Um, oh, wow. We've had a couple, we've already had one large ag employer in the Central Valley certified. Uh, UFW has been certified to represent their employees at that location. We've had a medium-sized nursery operation in Southern California that was certified week before last. So this is something that we're going to have on February 23rd. Uh, webinar, uh, Card Check and Ag Employers one year later. What does it mean to you and what have we learned from the first year of Card Check? Uh, we're going to be doing that with Seth Merton, who has handled the legal with both of those two first two ag employers uh, and see what we've learned from the first those first two and what ag employers need to understand. Join us on February 23rd at 10 o'clock. Uh, you can go to fels.net backslash webinars to register to attend that webinar. And we hope to see a lot of you there. Great. Thanks, Brian. And I would be remiss if I didn't say at the end of our lovely podcast that if you are not a Farm Bureau member, please join. Um, it's advocacy at all levels. Um, we are not commodity specific. And beyond the advocacy work, we have great membership services and benefits like becoming a subscriber to Bells. Yes. Thank you. As we publish a newsletter every month, it's chock full of great information, although you might want to wait and read it just before happy hour. So <laughs> <Yeah>. much. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today, Brian. It's a lot of really good, useful information. Well, good, good. Happy to be of help.